0: Love Talk
1: radio. It's, it's January 22nd, 2017. Hello, and welcome to Working for a Living radio show, where progressives for change present opinions that matter. Tonight, we are joined by co hosts Jeff Brown and David Fillion. I'm your moderator, Leroy McKnight. We certainly hope everyone stayed safe and had a wonderful Martin Luther King holiday. I'd uh, like to take a moment to inform our newest listeners a bit about our Working for 11 radio show that's now morphed into a caucus. Uh, though parts were created as early as 2013, Working for 11 officially started on April 4, 2016. Uh, it began as a website, Internet radio show, Facebook page, with a clear intention to morph into, over time, a caucus. Uh, The radio show may now be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, Player FM, and Workingforaliving.com. The current listeners, followers, and members number in the tens of thousands and is growing every day. The Working for a Living leadership is comprised of highly qualified, experienced, educated UAW leaders. It is very diverse and is balanced by age, gender, ethnicity, religion, creed, and location in the United States. Every member of the Working for a Living leadership team recognizes two types of people who aspire for office. One, those who seek it for power and control. And two, those for the privilege of serving the membership and the greater community in which we exist. Every member of the leadership team exhibits the latter, and promises to make every decision in the interest of the members that we may or do represent. Working for a Living Caucus is a very well-organized, very well-funded, and largely due to the Internet, represents the most formidable UAW caucus since Ruther started his administrative caucus, now called the Ruther Caucus, in 1946. It is the intention of everyone on-air and off-air in the leadership team to ascend to the leadership of our great UAW in 2018. That's an update on our uh, uh, existence and our goals. Uh, So we have some announcements tonight. Uh, The announcements, uh, the first one, Honeywell members, uh, represented by Local union, Union 9 and 1508, Remain locked. Number two, we must remember our coal miner brothers and sisters. As it appears, they will be losing their pensions and their health care benefits. Number three, again, the new legal services phone number is 800 482 7700. And the scheduled startup is now Wednesday, January twenty fifth, 2017. Uh, number four is a long announcement. It appears uh, Sergio Acosta, a former president of the United Auto Workers Local 2326, and broker Lawrence Ackerman were charged uh, Monday, I believe this was uh, January 9th, with conspiracy to defraud Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield and the union's own plan. Um, It appears that there's more to that story, though. Uh, in 2010, then Region 9 Director Joe Ashton promoted Acosta to International Staff Rep. However, in 2012, Acosta abruptly retired. You will note that that was five years ago. In the, interestingly enough, Joe Ashton's son ascended to President of Local 2326 when Acosta was promoted and later was promoted to International Staff himself, that being Joe Ashton's son. As we all know, Joe Ashton himself ascended to UAW Vice President over the GM Department and is now a full member on the General Motors Board of Directors. That's somebody that was supposed to be representing us as a union leader, now on management's team. Number five, to reiterate, the PRB has... Ruled on the ethical practices appeal at Local Union 600 by Art Peterson, and they have denied the appeal. Brother Peterson has filed for reconsideration. That has been posted on our page Work in 411, and you may review it there. If you can't see it, just ask to be added to the page, and we'll be happy to add uh, those of you who are not international staff reps on our uh, page, because we. Uh, have that exclusionary rule. It's only us working for a living people. No, no, no international staff reps. They invade our page. Having said that, uh, the PRB, number six, the PRB has ruled on the impo- improper voting regarding pension matters. It has denied that as well. We are now reliant on the filer of that appeal for updated information. That would not have been the case had my own timely appeal not been abstractly ignored by my own local union, as that appeal would have been able to be be filed for reconsideration had I filed or had they acknowledged what I filed in a timely manner. It goes to speak to the leadership of local and international uh, UAW leaders. Uh, so, you know, I was asked to advocate for that appeal by that filer and thus wrote all three of the steps on that, on that appeal, though I've yet to receive the latest ruling from that, uh, filer from the PRB and we're waiting for that. Uh, we would have liked to have had that, uh, possible reconsideration, uh, like that, uh, Art Peterson just did for this appeal. Unfortunately, that step has been removed, seems to be untimely, uh, Having said that, uh, announcement number seven, we would like to thank and congratulate each and every woman who marched in Washington, D.C., around the country, and here in Lansing, the capital of Michigan. What a great show of solidarity. Thank you very much, sisters. We really appreciate going out there and sending a message. Uh, Number eight, the latest available union membership Numbers as a percentage are union members in local government 41.3%, state government 30.2%, union members as a percentage in federal government 27.3%, and private sector 6.7%. On January 9th, I'm sorry, on number 9, on January 10th. The U.S. Treasury Department approved the cuts for Iron Iron Workers 17 out of Cleveland, Ohio. These are the pension cuts, brothers and sisters. There is a vote pending. Interestingly enough, a non-vote will be considered as a yes vote. So please, brothers and sisters, make your own vote in this matter, and don't let your apathy hurt you by not voting at all. You need to go and vote. If you're listening and you're an iron worker in the Cleveland, Ohio area working for the iron out of worker Iron Workers Local 17, you need to go vote when they offer you that opportunity, so that you don't get counted as a yes vote and lose part of your pension. Uh, announcement number 10. Uh, GM is still sending the crews to Mexico as they had scheduled previously, regardless of the new president's threats. Here's that General Motors has a plan and they're gonna abide by their own plan. So we'll see uh, how that measuring up goes. Uh, So on to email. We have a few emails. Um, uh, First one, uh, we had uh, received many emails expressing how informative the January 8th show was uh, when the two leaders from Local Union 9 were here explaining their plight. Uh, you know, Thank you for that, those well wishes uh, from all of those who uh, enjoyed that informative show and uh, much appreciated uh, that you wrote that in and, and uh, said that. So thank you for uh, reaching out to us. Again, our email address is workingforaliving at workingfor11. Just like the show, no G's and number four, not a word. Uh, the second email uh, we received several email uh, thanking Working for a Living for providing the addresses for both Local Union Nine and Local Union Fifteen O Eight in Green Island, uh, New York, uh, so that they could be sent money. So I hope that the fellows at both those and sisters, uh, at both those locals, are uh, benefiting by the. Uh, uh, posting we made with their addresses on it. So much appreciated to everybody who reached out and did that to, for them. Uh, on number three, we received a comment from uh, Brother Todd Tredder Vice President of Local Union 9, uh, Acting President uh, for the Honeywell facility. Uh, he thanked us for the opportunity of being on the show and that after a pretty glim holiday season, his team is now feeling re-energized. We continue to extend extend our support and wish the two respective Honeywell locals, UAW locals of uh, 1508 and Local Union 9, the very best of luck in the coming uh, time that they're faced with right now. Hopefully they can get a resolution to that pretty quick. Uh, we'll see. Um, uh, let me bring on the uh, co-hosts. Uh, let's see. We have, uh, I believe this is Brother Jeff Brown. Jeff, you there? Yeah, hi. Jeff. How you doing? Yeah. Hi, Jeff. Yes. Pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, let me bring on David here. Oh, didn't, didn't take. Hello, David. Can can you hear us? Yeah, I can, Larry. How are you doing? Okay, doing pretty good. You know, uh, personally, I had a, a little bit of a vacation. I got a chance to go up north and see a number of friends, as I used to live up north, and uh, have have a few of those up there. It was nice to see them, uh, and uh, spent a few days. And then I came back and promptly caught a cold at the gym, no doubt. Uh, so I. Uh, I'm uh, suffering for that. I understand you're sort of under the weather today, too, and, uh, you know, hopefully Jeff's doing better than both of us. So, uh, Jeff, how are you doing?
0: I'm okay. A little tired, but okay.
1: Good. 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 Okay. Um, uh, why don't you guys uh, discuss how the rest of your, your uh, time off was there, and and I'll be back in a second. I've got to... Uh, bring on our guest speaker here tonight. So I'll be back in a second.
0: Hey, Dave. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? doing? I'm
2: pretty good. good. Um, Had some pretty good time off. Made a trip up to Cadillac and did some fishing up there. Um, Ran into a UAW member way up there. Hmm. Um, He uh, was a staff rep, uh, had solidarity at Solidarity House, um, we spoke for a few minutes and uh, had mentioned uh, working for Eleven Caucus. And he said that he had heard of us and uh, wished us the best of luck.
0: That's interesting. We know yeah. they know they know about all about us. They know what we want to do, so when we're going after them. That's, that's for sure. I uh, spent a day out at Grand Rapids area at Grand Valley State visiting my son, took him out to lunch and uh, had some freezing rain on the way there. Um, yeah, the I know. I <laughs> with uh, ice on it. Went uh, yeah, off to lunch, had a good time, and I go home and like bad weather ever since. you know, And like
2: I was trying to beat that. uh, I stormed back. I left Cadillac at 1, hoping that I could beat it by 4, and uh, didn't make it. Um, Wasn't too bad, though. Um, Truck said that I was between 34 and 33 degrees all the time, so I don't think it really started to freeze up on... Me until you know after I got home, so I got lucky there. But I had to drive in
1: some rain. Well, good. But I had I had to drive up in in the uh, rain and sleet and snow. I got every kind of weather as I was driving up north there on Wednesday. Uh, gosh, it was I don't know before just before the holiday. Uh, let's get back into this if you don't mind, fellas. And uh, uh, we have a guest this evening. Uh, that's going to come on and talk about uh, education issues uh, that affect uh, people in Michigan primarily, but likely uh, can affect your own locality as well around the country. Please welcome a dear friend, longtime uh, friend, and uh, been a longtime supporter of her and all the things her husband does as well. Uh, Please welcome Ellen to the show tonight. Hi, hi, Ellen.
3: Hi, Leroy. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, we can hear you. Good.
3: Okay, good. So, uh,
1: did, did did you get a chance to participate yesterday in the the marches or anything?
3: I sure did. I drove over uh, from West Michigan to uh, Lansing with my friends, and uh, it was a wonderful event. Saw oh, a good. lot. We saw a lot That's of educators really nice. there. A lot of teachers.
1: Yeah. Good. That's that's good, you know. It's good that, uh, and of course uh, the teachers are all unionized for, by and large, not very few aren't, I guess. So, uh, so that's a good thing. Nice to see union people at that. So, all right. So the, you, know, and you, uh, you ladies had a nice time then, huh?
3: Yeah, it was great. There were a lot of uh, mostly women and a lot of kids, a lot of kids, and oh. I think you know. People are very concerned about the direction that uh, education is going in, especially with uh, our new president's uh, proposal for the new secretary of education. So I think that they turned out in force to see what uh, we can do to
1: for those of you that make sure we're, we're protecting know.
3: public education.
1: Yeah, yeah. For those of you that don't know, Betsy DeVos, former uh, Republican state party chair here in Michigan, and uh, wife of uh, the Amway-DeVos uh, family, uh, is, has now been, and, and I guess a $9 million donor to the Trump campaign, is now the Secretary of Education. This is a woman who has uh, a record of uh, uh, trying to dismantle Ed, public education within the state of michigan so this is going to be very interesting to see what she's going to do and um i'm, I'm glad to uh hear that there was so much support to try and stand up against what may be coming uh at this woman's rally yesterday or, yeah yesterday so um so having said that did you like the speakers were the speakers good there
3: Oh yeah, I think uh we heard from Gretchen Whitmer, we heard from uh Diane Byram and Lisa Brown. Um there were a no- number of people that were there representing uh uh Michigan uh as far as the Affordable Care Act and other uh union representatives and it was it was a very really excited t- exciting time. I do want to correct you however. Betsy DeVos has not been confirmed yet. So she is the oh, uh, nominee okay. for secretary of education but not confirmed
1: okay thank you <laughs> always always ready to accept uh when when we get it uh, wrong so thank you very much for that correction but she's uh, been forwarded as that so we'll see what happens that's correct um yes so here in in michigan as, as uh, we read in the newspaper some time ago and we've really been trying to get you on the show uh, unfortunately, we've, we've had some other issues that kind of got you bumped down the, the path, including the, uh, a holiday or two that came in there. So, uh, But this uh, article came out and said that they were going to uh, divert $125 million from public education from the state of Michigan to something that we don't know. And maybe you can tell us more about that if you would, please.
3: Well, you know, according to our new president, actually the schools are flush with cash. At least he announced that on Friday. Um, but uh, in, in terms of what my research has been, and, you know, the state's also talking about not uh, paying into unemployment, I imagine that uh, some of their numbers aren't adding up, and so they probably need to uh, balance their budget. I know that they've proposed about $2.5 million to go to uh, private schools. And also, I think, um, and this is real interesting because Betsy DeVos was behind the new law that said if a third grader was not reading at uh, grade level, that they would be retained. And uh, that funding, it looks like it has been cut as well. Don't get me wrong. I I really think that third graders should read at grade level, but you have to provide money for uh, the support that they need. I mean, just for an example, at the building I work at, we have over – a um, hundred students, probably 150 students. We have one half-time literacy teacher, so it's very difficult to think about raising uh, reading proficiency when the state is not providing support.
1: Right, right. And most of your students are low-income students, as I think we discussed one other time when you were on the show to the degree. Yeah, that's, we're
3: uh, oh, a high-poverty yeah. school. Oh. Yep, we're a high-poverty school. Uh, We are, uh, uh, all of our students qualify for free or reduced lunch, uh, or probably 90% do. And uh, these are kids that come to school already with a lot of um, deficits. A lot, you know, we have a number of kids that are homeless or they come from traumatized homes where they've witnessed abuse or, you know, they have a parent in prison. And so we need to be putting our resources towards, those kids, um, but what I find across the state is that um, most of the people that have their kids in suburban schools or the wealthier districts, they're perfectly happy with the public education their students are receiving, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of political will, I think, to help the kids that really need the intervention and assistance to get to grade level. Mm-hmm.
1: And do you have any suggestions uh, within our state to get the political will to try and do that?
3: Well, you know, it's really, I have to say as an educator, it's pretty appalling that um, our new president would select somebody like a Betsy DeVos who has never attended a public school. Her children do not attend public schools. She's been very Uh, on the leading edge of the whole charter school movement in Michigan, which takes resources from the public schools. And if we are going to do anything to try to at least level the playing field, we have to hold the charter schools to the same accountability levels that we hold the public schools. And in Michigan, we don't do that. And sadly, you know, we used to be in the top ten, Uh, of all the states as far as educational excellence and Michigan has slipped back into like 41st in the nation as far as reading and math scores and I think that when you look at all of the state experiments as far as the Detroit schools and uh, kind of unleashing this um, uh, influx of charter schools with no cap, no accountability, we have destroyed public education in Michigan.
1: Right. And our public education, you know, in the past, I mean, when uh, before all these charter schools started coming, there was a baseline of education that everybody could, you know, uh, be assured that they would get and they would be at some proficiency upon graduation. Is it, is that not your uh, uh, read on that as well? And since then... There's been, as you said, you know, 41 out of 50. We're only nine from the bottom in reading proficiency. That's just, you know, that's pretty sad,
3: you know. I think what happened um, during the Angler years is that, you know, he was the big proponent of school of choice, uh, and his main objective was to destroy the um, MEA. I mean, he was very open about that. And when you look at the right to work laws that have been passed, you know, the teachers' unions have been very weakened in the state. And unfortunately, the uh, impact has been this kind of a willy nilly approach to letting anybody that wants to open a school. And uh, the charter schools don't have the same obligations that the public schools do in terms of taking kids who might uh, have an IEP, which means they qualify for special education and also uh, kids that maybe have discipline issues. I mean, it is pretty well known that uh, the charter schools can cherry-pick the best and the brightest kids from the public schools, and they're not under the same obligations we are to take every child who walks through our door.
1: Right. Right. And, of course, you know, I guess you rise to the level of your peer, would you say, in, in, in schooling? Like... You see the suburban schools there, you know the the peers kind of drive that, and some of the the you know required reading at home by those parents that might not be so uh, prevalent in an in inner city environment. Uh, you think that you know that cherry picking and not having some of the underperformers next to the uh, higher achievers is really hurting you. you you believe that and I do too but I mean, well that comment don't get on you that? Me
3: wrong. I think we still yeah. have students and parents who are very committed to public schools and I think that I see excellence I see excellence where I work in the city I work I see students mm-hmm. that graduate from our schools that go to Harvard they go to U of M I mean we all know that parents are the most important factor when it comes to education but I think that what's happening is because the charter schools can pick and choose in terms of who they let come through the door, then the public schools are left to educate the really most challenging and most expensive schools to educate. So that just puts more of a burden on uh, public schools because if their enrollment diminishes, we know in Michigan, so does their uh, per-pupil funding. Uh, which makes it very, very tough because we lose resources and people and it's very hard to service kids who already are uh, at a disadvantage. And I would like to point out the other thing is, is one of the other results of the whole charter school, private school movement is that Michigan schools are as segregated as they have ever been, uh, and even back during the 50s when we had Brown versus the Board of Education. Despite all the best efforts, um, that we live through, like, you know, busing and and other opportunities to try to diversify the schools, uh, with schools of choice and charter schools, uh, we are pretty much segregated again. And that is very unfortunate, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it's sad. Yes, indeed. Um, and that it has a whole, another dynamic uh, that's that's part and parcel of that as well when you don't have regular uh, communication with your peers, you know, that are diverse, that then has its own uh, problem. So um, are there any steps that you'd like to see, What you know, like a first or a second step?
3: Well, I think if you look at other states, and, you know, I think, Leroy, we talked about this before, there are other states mm-hmm. like Minnesota, for example, that they actually fund schools based on need, and so the uh, urban districts with high poverty, high needs uh, children, they actually receive more funding than your typical suburban schools. Say like an Okemos or North Muskegon or Bloomfield Hills, because those kids mm-hmm. already have so you know they have so much just in terms of what they bring to school from their home. And so I think one of the things that Michigan needs to look at is what is it going to take to really level the playing field? Now, they recently did an adequate, I think it was the Department of Treasury actually did an adequacy study, and they found that, yes, in fact, that urban schools with high poverty, uh, high-need students, that we should be funding those schools uh, more than the wealthy districts because those kids need more support They need more in terms of academic intervention. And if we're ever to hope that we can begin to bring these students up to proficiency so they can be contributing members of our society, then we need to put the resources where they need to be. Um, I have thought for a long time that perhaps we need to look at the model that you see in other uh, states, which is uh, countywide school districts. So you might have... um, Say in Lansing, for example, you have a, a pretty large urban district. They have about 11 to 12 thousand kids, and then you have uh, pretty wealthy districts like East Lansing and Altamont. And a countywide district would be able to distribute the resources to the schools as they need them, instead of having you know, schools like Okemos where the kids are getting $12,000 a year per people spending, and then you look at Lansing and the kids are getting $7,000 a year, that that could be averaged out to the point that we would be sending more resources to the schools that really need them.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed. I've long been uh, aware that Florida has a countywide uh, educational system, just like you just, just described. And there are a lot of economic advantages to that because the um administration costs go way down because we don't have superintendents true. for every school district that's making four hundred thousand. I mean you you look at years. the
3: counties if you look at the counties throughout Michigan, um you probably might have up to, you know, seventeen, eighteen different districts, you know, little districts um like uh Say in um West Michigan, you might have uh, little districts that are uh you know have their own superintendent, as you point out, their own finance person, their own curriculum person, and yet um they have a district right next to them that is equally small that have the same duplication of administration, and that's definitely Correct. something we that
1: lose you
3: you? I'm right here. Are you still hearing me?
1: Ellen are you there? I think we yeah, I'm here. You. Oh, okay. Oh, well. Sorry, something happened there, so it's okay. okay. Well, we heard uh, uh, the idea that the, the combining of uh, finance directors and you know superintendents into one uh, or two, you know, uh, would be very, very beneficial uh, economically for these schools. Um, one of our colleagues on the show here just posted a civil rights project at UCLA choice. Without Equity, Charter School Segregation, and the Need for Civil Rights Standards. Uh, so that's on our page now uh, for those of you that have access to that. But I'll I'll get you a copy of this, Ellen, so that you you may not already know about it. It's a civil rights okay, project. Okay, I look forward UCLA, to reading that.
3: All right. I think this yeah. is the most um, important issue in front of us.
1: Yeah. Let me, Let me ask you something. I mean, uh Do you think there would be value in uh, our uh, caucus by and through our listeners and followers and throughout social media to get a a template letter to send to their House rep and senators uh, that make these decisions um, that might make the suggestion of following something like the Minnesota model? Or a model of a uh, single school district per county. Uh, do you think there'd be value in in uh, trying that grassroots effort and see where it goes?
3: I I think that it might be worth a try. Um, again, I I feel a little bit discouraged because as I mentioned, I think a little earlier that I've been this has been a huge issue to me for the last you know ten fifteen years. And I do think that, unfortunately, because of the way school funding happens in Michigan, that there are a lot of people that are very satisfied with the public education that their children get. I mean, if you look at charter schools, they're very much concentrated in the, you know, bigger urban centers. And so they tend to, you know, be, they're not particularly an issue for what, I would call really more single district, you know, if you go out into the suburbs, you'll find uh, more single district schools where they have one high school, they might have, you know, two middle schools. And so those parents are are pretty satisfied with the public education their child's receiving. So I I think it might be worth a try. I think what's more important is I think we're going to have to elect people to the legislature that understand Mm -hmm. education. Right now we have people that are making educational policy who have never set foot in a, in a classroom. They have no idea. And this starts right at the top. You look at Betsy DeVos, she has zero, zero experience as an educator. And so the idea to put someone like that and zero experience as an administrator and, and as a public school administrator, I have a lot of, um, I value the skills that it takes to be an administrator that Betsy DeVos simply does not have. And so I think this is a problem across uh, Michigan in terms of our, our legislature that we have right now. They're making decisions without any understanding of what's actually going on in the public schools today. And and, and that's really concerning.
1: I, I I agree. And that's going on in a lot of arenas. But education absolutely uh, is 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 something uh, you know. I I uh, back to when I was a, uh, like in sixth or seventh grade when they were talking about every, a, a, a public school district for every township, and mm-hmm. um, that that might have been a mandate at some point, in, at least in the the state of Ohio where I actually grew up at that point in time. But um, you know these these mandates uh you know that we uh, are required to have a public school and then have you know a standard education level for all of these uh public schools i you know i I just think that we've gotten away from that for some reason, and I'm just so distressed education is such such an important thing uh for our state to be. Thriving and to see it, you know, literacy level at the 41st level, nine from the bottom, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of these folks really need to be uh, taken off and talked to in real big boy terms.
3: Uh, right. And
1: uh, it seems to be a real problem that there's so many entitled people ascending to these offices that don't have the experience required to do what they're supposed to be doing. Right,
3: right. Um, I mean, I mean, so, just think about this. I want to talk about one more thing. I know you, you probably got to move on, but um, yeah, I mean, think bit. about the fact that one of the big things that's happening in Michigan is, you know, you have homeschooling that has no regulation whatsoever. I mean, people can just pull their kid out of school and say, well, I'm going to homeschool them. And there's no okay. requirement to say they're enrolled in any kind of a program. And the other thing we've seen is a, a big uh, turn uh, around as far as virtual schools, where you have these K-12 right. schools online, which I, I see yeah. a role for a K-12 school. You know, say if you have somebody like a, a, a student who is, a, you know a, a, a musician who is a, a child prodigy, and so they, they go and they have lessons or a gymnast or somebody that travels a lot. I can see a place for mm-hmm. online school. But why should online schools in Michigan get the same per-pupil funding that a brick-and-mortar district that has to provide a building, has to provide a gymnasium, a a music program, all these things that cost a lot of money. Why should a K-12 virtual school get the same per-pupil funding as your traditional school district? I mean, these are things that don't really add up, and it's a lot of money. I mean, think about it.
1: Right, and I, you know, I, I, I see some of these. I was going to mention that. See some of these kids wandering around. I mean, they're, you know, thirteen, fourteen, sixteen, you know. And I said, "Aren't you supposed to be in school?" Oh, I go to virtual school.
3: Yeah, they're on um, online school, which they that yeah. whole pro that whole approach has not really been vetted, and a lot of times. Yeah. Parents, you know, if they have a student, their kid has gotten in trouble, or they get suspended, or whatever. And unfortunately, there's a lot of parents in our society that want to blame the schools instead of looking in the mirror at themselves. And so they'll mm-hmm. put their kid on online school, and then they go off to work. And guess what? The kid is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, you have right, that's why right, I made right. the, the I, I brought up the issue about someone who's very disciplined. Okay who maybe has, I always use the example, uh, years ago uh, we had a student at our school that used to go to Chicago twice a week for uh, music lessons. They were a child prodigy. Uh, And so for a student like that, online school might make sense. But most kids are not that disciplined, and their parents aren't that disciplined, to make sure that, you know, that kind of a virtual school is going to actually work. And so, uh, I but I think it's outrageous but because of the way our school funding is in Michigan, that those schools get $7,000 a year per pupil, just like my students get. And we are providing a comprehensive school program with electives, with sports teams, with music programs, art programs, cafeterias, school lunch, and yet they they get the same amount of money that we do. And it's not right. Right.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Uh, do you have anything you want to wrap up with, Helen? Uh... No. Um,
3: you, brought, you started the conversation with the uh, marches that we saw yesterday. Um, I think yeah. they were very inspiring, but I think we have to move forward. I think that um, we have to have a commitment to public schools. Um, it's just like anything else. Public schools exist because we are trying to provide a free and appropriate education for every single child in this country, and that's what they are entitled to by law. And when I hear about things like, um, you know, let's give money to private schools, let's give public money to religious schools, to continue to, um, you know, attack the, the, the public institution, which is our public school system in the United States, I think we're on a very slippery slope. And I think people need to realize that, you know it's it can, they cannot schools cannot be run like a business uh there can't be a pro, a profit motive that we have to have public schools for our common good if we're going to prepare kids and, and our young people to be you know knowledgeable citizens of this country and and be ready to take on the mantle of leadership um that has always happened for every generation
1: right right okay Well, you know, we'd like to thank you. I want to ask uh, Jeff and David if they have anything to ask you. Uh, First of all, Jeff, do you have anything to ask? Ellen?
0: Uh, No, I don't. I do want to thank Ellen for coming on and explaining all that to us. Um,
1: It's good news.
0: It's coming. Good reporting. Um, She is right. A lot of my members in my plant seem to think that education, education has been failing us last twenty years. And if you think about it, you know, where did all the tax base go for the last 30 years? The auto factories, you know, companies like that, they shut down and moved out. There's no more tax base in the school districts. It's all coming out of a uh, public citizens tax payment. But um
3: thank you, Ellen. Well, you're very welcome, and uh, we look forward to chatting again sometime yeah.
1: soon. Okay, thanks. And, and then David's got David. You got any uh, comments for Ellen or questions?
3: Um,
2: yeah, um, I was surprised to hear you talk about segregation um, a while back. Um, another member had posted an article um, that. Um, a little bit different than the information I posted from UCLA, um, where uh, charter schools were used as a tool to segregate students and disadvantage students of color in the 50s. Um, do you see that same um, scenario playing out today in public schools oh, and ab- charter schools? Uh,
3: absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it's it's really interesting because um, the whole idea, the promise of charter schools was to offer parents choice, and we could have a whole other, you know, program about that notion, you know, which is that, you know, students are and parents are customers. I mean, it's this whole business model. But I uh, think that what is overlooked is, unfortunately, for a lot of poor um students and students of color, that they already are, you know, disadvantaged. Their parents often don't necessarily have the means or the ability to transport their children, okay, to go to um, suburban schools or charter schools. They do not compete, all right. And the other thing is, is that, um,
1: I think we lost you, Alan. I can't hear you. You said the other thing is?
3: I said that that, um, if you look at the suspension rates for um, students, the number of boys that are suspended and the number of boys of uh, color that are suspended uh, really typically result in the fact that they are kind of stuck in inner city public schools because charter schools will not take them
1: hmm Okay.
3: So yes, yeah, so that I think um, that contributes to the whole issue of segregation.
2: That answers my question. Thank you, Alan. Okay. All right. Okay. All right, you guys uh, have a great Thanks for coming Thank on,
1: Ellen. Uh sure. how how about if we get together at some point and maybe draft a letter uh on on uh, the issue of uh consolidating schools within a county and possibly the Minnesota model. Uh, being incorporated into that somehow. And then you know, I'm I'm up for funding a uh, mailing to all of the uh House Reps and Senators, uh so that at least they would have that in their uh uh you know in their bailiwick if you will and uh possibly having a the ability to have a number of people sign that somehow. Uh well, certainly if they do we're it online. You, right? Okay, well, thank you, Ellen. Thank you for coming on. You have
3: a good evening. Okay, bye bye, Ellen.
1: Bye bye. Bye. Okay, so we had Ellen with us, and she did a nice job. We're three quarters of the way through the the, the, uh, show this evening. Um, The uh, next thing I think we have up here is um, our plank number five, and I believe Jeff has that for us. Jeff, do you want to go ahead and talk about our plank number five?
0: Yeah, team working for a living uh, has plank number five. Uh, Our team recognizes the needs to fully and thoroughly educate our membership on the matters of wages, working conditions, hours of employment, as well as the legal matters and jurisdictions that affect our membership. And pledge to use every communication tool available to disperse such educational information, to include but limited to direct mailing, face-to-face communication, by the bargaining and other standing committees, designated websites, text services, social media, web radio, and any other method that will avail itself to expedite communications in the future. That's fact number five.
1: Thank you, Jeff. That's uh, very nice. Uh, that will be put in our our uh, uh, website here soon, and so everybody can view those uh, as uh, they uh, come out. So um, the uh, next issue is, uh, you know, we have a member of our team uh, that um, was uh, uh, blessed and graced with the opportunity to have two international press interviews during the auto show. Jeff, would you like to tell us about those?
0: Yeah. Um, I had been interviewed by two separate French reporters. Um, one posted his interview. Uh, he sent me the link to his interview. Um, he interviewed three Ford employees, myself and two other people. Uh, The day it came out, I received a phone call saying that there were some mistakes in the interview. Um, I have to let everybody know that when I hired into the plant, I did receive full benefits on day one. Because I hired in at Mazda, okay, not Ford, Mazda. And it took me 18 months to get full pay. But the interview itself was we it asked a lot of questions about mr trump the, the announcement of investing in hybrid mustangs and trucks to, um here in the states instead of building a plant in Mexico. We we're all happy to uh hear that that announcement that they weren't building a a plant in mexico um The the interview I got the first time, they didn't use much of the material that I I gave them. We videotaped it in front of the plant, and we have the article that was written on our page. The second one I had last week, Tuesday, in front of the plant during shift change. Um, Again, they videotaped it. They were asking the same questions as the first one. How did Mr. Trump feel about the, the to do with the no patent in Mexico? They asked myself um, what I thought of Mr. Trump and what we deal with, what we want to see the most of. Naturally, we want to see job security for everybody. Um, as people were walking in the gate last week, we were stopping a few of them and asking them the same questions. Um, everybody seemed to be on the same page, but again, it was mostly about Trump and the auto industry, um, concerning Mexico and things like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, that's
0: kind of like that, right? As soon as I get the next, um, letter, I will post it. Okay. Thanks.
1: Uh, Dave, do you have anything for, for Jeff? No. I was
2: glad he was able to have those interviews.
1: I, too. Not my first
2: Uh, time. No, I know you're not. not (laughs) That's not your first
1: no,
0: I've done quite a few.
1: Yeah, good. Good. Uh, Well, thanks, Jeff, uh, for that. And uh, David... Do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, six-day work week over there at 598 in
2: Flint? Um, assembly? Yeah, it came to our attention that they have a new um, outline and structure for um, the process to request a Saturday off. Um, I have a calendar here that shows just about every Saturday and 17 being worked with the exception of uh, July and uh, um, November during um, Thanksgiving and Christmas in December, um, all these employees at Local 598 are scheduled to work six days. They have what's called an HCC tool, and additional part-time employees provide additional time off for our employees. Saturday excused off requests must be through the HCC tool. This is the only way to receive Saturday time off outside of the vacation process. The HCC tool intended for all is intended for all seniority employees division 1 and division 2. The plan is dividing part-time employees across the shifts and departments. The number of part-time employees assigned to each shift department is based on the percentage of the plant population. The HCC tool, this is the process for Saturday Off requests, will display the HCC tool that will display 90 days out so employees may plan their requests. Employees must request to be excused 30 days prior to a scheduled Saturday, the HCC lockout the Saturday once the 30-day mark is reached. Once a Saturday is locked, employees may not make any changes to the Saturday. If an employee has not made a Saturday off request, then the employee is expected to report for work on the scheduled Saturday. Business managers must allocate additional coverage and provide approvals, denials, employees who have made Saturday off requests one week after the Saturday is locked. The first Saturday, February 11th, additional time off allocation to be determined by the... um, This part is cut off, so I can't read that. Um, The team and the seniority of those in the team as the, year, as the year continues, additional time off requests will be determined by number of approved members have been already received. Those with the least number of Saturdays approved off will receive preference over the greater number of approved Saturdays off. In the event of a tie in number of approvals, seniority will be used. That's a far cry from Plan A.
1: Correct. Or Plan B, right. Far cry from. Um, Jeff, do you, do you have anything for David? Any questions, concerning?
0: No, I don't. It just seems like it's screwed up to me. Um, wonder how the UAW allowed that to happen. let
2: come, come out of the GM department.
1: Right right that's that's our understanding right out of Cindy Estrada's office, the i I've been in some communication with the members there and they are very angry at the i u a w for forcing them into this six day work schedule without there being an emergency declared uh it's one thing if you follow the rules and it's another thing if you just Enforce this without uh, any regard for the black letter print in the contract itself. <laughs> and that's a problem. So, um, okay. Uh, Dave, you have anything else on that?
2: No, I don't agree.
1: Okay. I'm going to take on uh, this. We're long. Uh, In the tooth here for the show Normally we wrap this up right about now But I'm going to take a stab at this real quick If I can do it in maybe five or ten minutes Uh, For those that don't know that are listening The Lansing City Council has been working for the better part of a month now since the beginning of the year to try and select a president and vice president of their city council and you know I've been around a number of years here in in this and actually was the cap coordinator and chair of the democratic party and none of this sort of thing occurred during my leadership the result of, of what i'm about to tell you is that we have seven women and one man on the lansing city council and the one man young man is the son of one of the women And there's just uh, disgusting fighting, infighting going on right now between them all. This is a result of the UAW exerting itself on this council in the past six to eight years. Region 1C Director Norwood Jewell got rid of the last lawyer on the board, Brian Jeffries. Brian Jeffries was a team player. Brian Jeffries and I had many a long phone call discussing his desires and the community needs as far as his participation in the elected process. He was always a team player. He understood the word no from time to time when he had to hear it. But he also was told yes from time to time. Brian Jeffries was is a good man. Norwood Jewel got rid of him. He's an attorney. He brought all of that experience. He was the county commission chair for about 12 years. He was on the LCC Board of Trustees. I think, two terms. He actually won that over one of the genius political brainchilds after Brian Jeffries withdrew to try and let this other one win, and Brian still won. And then he was elected to city council and did a good job opposing some of the current mayor's things that are going on down there. Not all of them, but one that made sense He stood up and said, I don't think this is right. And now we have Kareem, Gerald Kareem, as our regional director for Region 1D, as that's changed for the capital area from 1C and 1D were combined. Dave Perry is the CAP coordinator. And they sit over in Flint, by herself over there happily allowing a power vacuum here in Lansing and we have the resulting infighting going on with no direction from anybody with any real authority none whatsoever and this is a result of the UAW Dennis Williams who controls, by virtual number, virtue of numbers, the AFL-CIO who did not replace their legislative liaison who was in town, somebody that I had a great deal of respect for, Tim Hughes, who every day the legislators in the Senate, in the House, and on occasion the executive office and some judicial people, had to look him in the eye as he walked around the city in those halls and in city hall from time to time. They pulled him. He retired, and they They didn't uh, fill that position. They said that the cap coordinators from the other districts, regional districts, would come a few days a week or a couple days a week and they would rotate and cover the Capitol. I submit to you, the listeners, that's not working in any way, shape, or form. It's been an abstract disaster in the city council In most other legislative bodies. I was involved in my Meridian Township, last election cycle and we had great victory there. Great victory. We almost took the clerk's job. A couple mistakes were made and we probably would have. Somebody told me on Friday that I lost out there. You didn't do any good. I'm going, really? (laughs) A lot of people got elected and there's a whole lot of losers that are really angry and the township manager is a very happy person because they no longer have four hour meetings, mm-hmm. and they're down to about an hour and a half and they do the public's business in an hour and a half and all of the public can get the consolidated version of what was going on out there in about an hour and a half so good government took place and people that were Past their prime, not being a positive contributor, but nothing but a marplot in the system needed to be exercised. And these were people almost 90 years old, good, well meaning people that no longer were effective. We supplanted them very successfully. And good government is taking place. No, no UAW person other than myself was involved in the walking, the calling, the robocalls, the emails. I was the treasurer for the pack out there. We were very, very successful. I've been to county commission meetings, no UAW people. City council meetings, no UAW people. Parks and rec meetings, no UAW people. Township party meeting, no UAW people. They're absent, AWOL and not doing their job sitting over in Flint, thinking they're a big shot. When we ascend to power, when we ascend to office, and we have the authority to make the changes required, we will consider their absence in the capital of Michigan as dereliction of duty. Beyond notice of that right now. Dennis Williams is the head of the CAP Department Every CAP representative in the United States reports to Dennis Williams directly. They may serve in a region and have to serve two masters, if you will. This falls directly on Dennis Williams, indirectly on Norwood Jewell, who was the regional director before Gerald Kareem. And it's directly also on Gerald Kareem, who's here now, and allowing this power vacuum to exist. Everybody, including the press, is absolutely disgusted and exhausted with what's going on here in Lansing with this city council right now. Now, let's back up just a little bit. Ingham County Democratic Party. I was chair there once. I know all the rules. I was famous for telling people, if you don't know the rules, don't play the game. If you don't know the rules, don't play the game. I know all those rules, backward and forward. I wrote a lot of them. And there's Michigan compiled law that you have to adhere to. Let's just talk about that, just a second. Over here, there's a Public Act 566, 1978, incompatible public offices, and this is in the Michigan Compiled Laws, 15.181 for those following along. I'm not a lawyer, but we're gonna talk about some things here for all of you lawyer types so that you can then understand Exactly the problem which I'm talking about right now. Let me preface this by saying Diane Byram, House Rep, United, or Michigan Senator, and later recording secretary for the Michigan Democratic Party. She had to resign that recording secretary position to run for trustee of Michigan State University. She was not allowed or afforded the opportunity to maintain both of those jobs. June Palatini, in 1995, resigned from the Ingham County Democratic Party so she could run for treasurer, not allowed to hold both offices. In their infinite wisdom, in their power vacuum and in their lack of knowledge of the structure of the party or elected office. The brainchilds and geniuses in the name of the CAP coordinator who has responsibilities for such matters and the local tri-county Cap Council have input into who becomes the Ingham County Democratic Party chair because we have a lot of members there when they show up and we control the convention floor, etc. Because of the power vacuum, nobody in charge, all of the little, little people that think they run everything. Elected officials think they run everything. Those that are not empowered with authority to make such decisions are making such decisions. I say little people, on low office holders, let's put it that way. Now, when you have low office holders, putting something together, you get what just occurred. And they elected to the Ingham County Democratic Party chair, the city clerk for the city of Lansing. City of Lansing clerk is supposed to be the most unbiased person, politically nonpartisan in this state or in the city of Lansing. The integrity of the ballots are his responsibility. I like the man; I think he's a good man. Somebody talked him in for running for, for county party chair, and he accepted it. And a slate of people, a slate of people, accepted that slate. And they were all on it. And the executive committee all voted on it. All of whom now, if there's any problem, are culpable. Culpable in a legal structure. Now, remember we're talking about 15.181 MCL. B, incompatible offices. Means public offices held by a public official which, when the official is performing the duties of any of the public offices by the official results in any of the following with respect to those offices held, okay, incompatible. One, the subordination of one public office to another. By the way, any Partisan party office is a public office and is provided for by Michigan statute. So it is a public office. He's holding two. Okay. County party chair, and city clerk. Okay. So the first one is the subordination of one public office over another. Number two, supervision of one public, public office over another. Number three, the breach of duty of public office. Those three things. Does the county party chair have superintending authority over a subordinate city clerk? That's for an attorney or a group of attorneys or a judge to answer. Supervisory over the city clerk or is a super. City Clerk Supervisory over the party chair. Again, for a group of attorneys or a judicial venue to determine. Number three, breach of duty of public office. Okay. Breach of duty of public office. That means his primary job all day long is City Clerk his duty is to be unbiased I can tell you I was the county party chair one of many but I must add the most successful one when you ask Randy Schaefer a sitting county commissioner right now right now how it would felt in 97 and 98 to be the only Republican sitting in the caucus room, he will tell you it didn't feel good for two years. My last two years as party chair, there was only one Republican left in the county commission. One house rep and one somewhere out in Williams, not Williamson, but uh, uh, Leslie, I believe. Republican. That's it. That's it. Free out of the county. The whole county. So I kind of know what it takes to do that job, and you can't do it when you're sitting in a nonpartisan, unbiased position eight hours a day. Now, who can exert authority on our city council problem? Well, UAW is AWOL. And they're in charge of politics here in in Michigan. God knows what's going on at the Capitol. But it's a disgrace in public. There's three. I'm sitting here looking at three articles this evening that have been written in the past ten days by the Lansing State Journal. So who can exert authority? Well, then you have the county party chair. He's sitting on the dais with, with the rest of this, the eight people sitting on the dais for the rest of the eight people, he can't exert any authority. In fact, there's another law that I'll not go into that one, but it, it simply says you may not conduct any partisan activities while you're paid to be working, and he's being paid as he sits on that dais Monday nights. And he cannot. If he does, he's in violation. law. he cannot raise up and say anything more than he would have if he were the city clerk. And I like the man. I really do. I think he's one of the best people that's set on that diet. I've known him since before he aspired to be an elected official. Helped him when it was time for it, when it was his time. Helped him to get elected during my tenure. So, he's been around a long time. He's a good man, but he can't do both jobs. Because of some of this, what I just cited, and some of the dilemmas, if he says anything to the people that try and bring them under some pressure, he cannot do that in that forum. Who else can? Elected officials? Hmm. Outside elected officials? meddling in another council or commission. Let's just see. Let's just say elected official A says, oh, well, I think, I think I'll think i go over there and talk to him. Well, they get snubbed pretty quick right then, right? Or elected official A says, I'm tired of this and I'm going to participate in a slate building caucus and they go and try and do that and the first person they forward somebody who doesn't even live in the county let alone the city notwithstanding a school board member so they don't know what they're doing now do they elect the official A and of course they're out there talking about participating in a slate So, what's that going to do to elected official A's credibility? When when the council finds out that elected official A is participating in a slate against them, young authority, new power that doesn't know what they're doing, young people without the knowledge so much as to know you can't elect somebody from another county, and there's a one-year requirement of residency prior to filing for office in the city of Lansing. Oh, it was six six months or a year. No, it's one year. It's 30 days for a county commissioner and one year for the city of Lansing. 30 days for a house rep, 30 days for any countywide. But in the city of Lansing, for any elected office, it's a one-year residency requirement. And residency can be if you lay your head down on a pillow overnight, at least four nights a week within the city. That then demonstrates residency. Residency. Even, you, even though you may be domiciled somewhere in Detroit. You could have qualified to run for office if you'd done that for at least a year. Another little nuance that not many people know. Because, like I told you earlier, if you're going to play the game, you better know the rules. And I'm letting a few rules out right now. As it happens, elected officials ought not to be in power broker business of trying to pick candidates for another elected body. Because when it's found out, and it will, because any time this town finds anything out, it's like lightning across the street. It'll, it's just, if you say it, it's going to get told. And it will come out if you are meddling in other people's business. And then, and then, elected official A loses authority with the folks in the city council. Okay, so then, then you have, well, you have people out there that are really disgusted and they'd like to see change and individuals in the community. Well, the the wealthy developers are just taking advantage of everything, so they're happy with the people they have down there, even though they're in a distressed mode right now. They're happy with them because they can go down there and manipulate them because they're pretty weak, quite frankly. And then they have a TIFA. They'll build the building, buy the property, Well, I shouldn't say buy the property and build the building because they'll put a project together, purchase the property with a bond from the city and develop the property, build out the building. They own the property in the building and the city residents pay for all of that building and those people get to keep it they get to keep it at the end of the day, and the city paid for it, residents of the city. It's called a TIFA, Tax Increment Finance Authority. Some of the people ascending, aspiring to ascend to city council don't know what a TIFA is. That's been explained a couple times to some of them. Uh, so, uh, and there's a, a whole dynamic on how that occurs, but... Uh, the TIFA is something that's really been taken advantage of by the developers so they're not interested so and the average citizen doesn't have the wherewithal or connections and the elected officials can only get themselves in trouble if they meddle they, some don't know that yet but they'll find out they'll get their nose burned a few more times and, and they'll figure it out and then you have me And I don't much give a shit what any of them think of me. I want good government for the members of the UAW that live in this city and the surrounding area. And I want good government for the rest of the people who are the neighbors of our membership. And I did that with distinction for a very long time right here in this town. And I'm disgusted at what Dennis Williams has done in the cap department. I'm disgusted with the current cap chair of Region 1D and disgusted with the Tri-County Cap Council, what they're doing. And, oh, I don't pay cap dues, by the way, but I spent, and you can find, $1,200 $1,200 donated, um, at least $1,200 donated on the books to candidates last year. So I'm second, virtually second to none in my donations to candidates that we endorse in the end, but people I've pushed into that endorsement process and then done my backdoor work to get that to occur. I still have a few connections in this town but I'm working with a few candidates I'm working with a few candidates and we will have a slate pretty soon because the city has sprung up and said we don't want the people that are there we've made nine mistakes the only exception being the clerk the eight eight city council and the one mayor And all nine have to go. And unfortunately, the mayor is happy, and so are the developers with who's there. So there will be a lot of money spent on keeping and retaining the disgusting things that are going on down there right now. There's only one way to beat it, and that's for the slate. We'll have it, and we'll fund it. And I don't care what they think of me. They caused this. You want to know something else? I would not be motivated and engaged if the asshole CAP coordinator for this district, regional, Region 1D, was doing his job. Because I know what the job is. I had it. I'm disgusted with the whole entire structure at this time they've allowed for this power vacuum to occur they've allowed for young aspiring otherwise good people to get so full of themselves that they're going to hurt themselves before it's all said and done to the point and degree that all of their hopes and dreams will be thwarted because When you get to meddling, as elected official A is, elected official A will be admonished and disdained by half of the city council and probably all, unable to be effective with the interaction between the two elected offices. Peers of elected official A because of that controversy, will begin to shun elected official A. So elected officials need to stay in the business of being an elected official and then call on people that are qualified and understand the system in the absence of real authority doing its job Find somebody, seek somebody out that actually knows that has recovered from the the curve of after Tom Downs told me this is every time we have a party chair we we throw them out and and treat them like trash and when they're done, and the most recent past chairs gone through that, and the one prior to that past chair of the Democratic Party and then a couple between them and I, I think there's four since my time now five with uh, the the clerk without saying his name so the uh, thought is that team working for a living is going to make Michigan a better place to be, it's going to make our country a better place to be and we're going to start with the city of Lansing in Ingham County and we're going to hold people to the laws that are on the books that prevent things. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, in, you know, in your best interest, in your best interest, the very best thing you could do for yourself, and I'm telling you like your father, your brother, and, and you know, I, I just want to tell you, you are in serious, serious, Territory holding the city clerk job and the party chair job at the same time. You need to resign from one of them. It is absolutely, absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, incompatible public offices and addressed as such in the Michigan compiled laws. So, We're going to put a slate together. We'll have one. Might not be the people that have been asked already, all of them, but we'll have one, and we'll fund it, and we'll have a whole team in every ward from ward captain, the district captains, the precinct captains, and precinct workers in every ward in the city of Lansing They will exist. And those that have disgraced this great city, the capital of Michigan, will be ousted from their fiefdom. And those who are not doing their job and meddling in areas that they shouldn't be will be ousted from their fiefdom. Stick to your job. Your job is the job assignment of your elected position. Stay with it. Now, I know a lot of people are listening to this tonight, and I know a lot of people are going to listen to it throughout the week. If you've heard anger in my voice tonight over what's going on, it's not even close to what people are bringing to my attention. As I walk through this town and they recognize me and most know and remember me because I was in the press every in the media, TV and radio, every week, I'm asked, what can we do to make this thing go away? A man who ran for city council in 1993, and got beat. I ran, you know, team against him. Came to me at the gas station. Leroy, I have a political science degree from Caltech Northridge. I ran, as you know, in 93. What can I do to make this better? Give us the direction we need. And I'm here to tell you, I'm going to stand up and do the job. that's not being done by my beloved union. I'm sad to say that. Um, that's all I have on this report. Jeff, do you have anything?
0: Yeah, I have one. One little item. We did a good job uh, earlier in the week. We had a situation in our plant. So I needed to talk to some of our younger workforce to educate them. One young man came up to me and told me he was mad at the international because he was told that our dues increase was only supposed to be for one contract. When I asked him about who told him that, he said somebody in our union. And I told him, whoever told you that has no idea what he's talking about because our dues has nothing to do with our contract. So we have, we also need to remove from bullshit in the pay office are giving out bullshit information such as this. This is how people get mad. Don't tell them the truth. Right. If it comes out the other way around, they get mad. So I educated this young man that our dues increase was accepted by the um, UAW Delegate Convention and it's in our Constitution. So having said that, we need to educate our people as well. And again... And Miss Williams and your entire team uh, straighten up. Your time is up. very short-lived right. in office. That's right. So I got me right.
1: That's right. Thank- thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Uh, David, do you have anything on my report? I know we got long here. But...
2: No,
1: I don't. Remember. Okay. That thanks. Good job. I aspire to do a good job, and I aspire to yeah. demonstrate leadership that's going to that's gonna change the city, change the state, and change our country. So. And with your help, we will do that. And I appreciate your support in the efforts that I'm doing here. And you've supported me all throughout last year, year before, as I... Work my political wiles, and we've been very successful. you know we lost our our, our uh, uh prosecuting attorney candidate he didn't win, but he made a name for himself he's got a real future for him he He got some groundwork and he's uh, got the opportunity to make a difference uh if that uh, uh goes ahead and he doesn't do anything with it, it will wane. His name ID will wane and if he's waiting for somebody to leave, it'll be the same thing next time because there'll be other political leaders that'll be against him. He had most of the establishment against him. We worked hard, but he lost and I, I really feel bad because you think he took it a little personal and I, I don't think he really should have been because um, it, you know, it's just a lot of hard work and he t- he did well in the city, but he didn't carry the out-county at all. So, um, but having said that, uh, we'll, we'll see where that, uh, may go or not go as time goes by. Um, uh, the, uh, um, Jeff hit on something about the membership being told one thing and their realization is something else, uh, the reality is something else. And, of course, the you, you, dues increase is going to be there forever <clears throat> until somebody in the convention floor changes it. Okay? And I uh, want to say that I ran into a sister uh, at the post office here in Lansing. And I know her well. And she is boundly determined that she was supposed to get her Social Security and not have any adjustment in her pension. She was told that by the benefit level. Um, I'm a re- retiree currently, and I'm going to tell everybody in the union, in our great union, when you retire, if you are in pension plan and you have a pension. And we're going to work to try and get pensions for those that don't have pensions Uh find pension plan. Uh, but we'll see. You know, it's, it's, it's actually a cheaper way of going for the corporations. And there's been studies done on that. But uh, when you retire, you sign a form. And that form tells you what you're going to get with the supplement, And then it tells you what you're going to get at age 62 without the supplement. And that's explained to you, or it's supposed to be explained to you when you retire. And the benefit reps, and I know that I don't represent you any longer the second that they sign that paper, your retirement paper. And that's not necessarily true fact is absolutely false Uh, but having said that the uh, uh, buyer need to know without question that when you retire if you're below age 62 younger than age 62 then you you will get a retirement form that says This is what you're going to get at the top side of it when you retire and before age 62. Upon ascending to age 62, you're going to start getting Social Security, whatever that amount is, and your pension will be less, and this is what you're going to receive at that time, less money than than that. There's a carve-out. They call it a carve-out. So all of you making decisions to retire... As you consider that, please know the following. At age 62, if you retire before age 62, your pension will change. It will be less. And in her case, it coordinated to be a total less amount. It was less money because her her Social Security uh, didn't make up the difference. So um, sad to say. But that, that's going on People are being told, like Jeff said They're being told incorrect information So we cleaned up two of those today The, the dues and the retirement issue That some people are getting uh, in, inconsistent information on Another thing came up today uh, Brother on another page Asked a question uh, Is the Viva going to be affected if the ACA, ACA goes away? And it wasn't effective when it came into being. I, this is just off the cuff. It's my personal opinion, uh, an educated opinion nonetheless, because I fought the VBA, and we got it mitigated to some degree when we did that. Uh, but we, um, uh, we fought the VBA, uh, and uh, it didn't change when the ACA came in there's a couple of elements of the ACA that may affect uh, a certain uh, sort of retiree. and It's a personal thing. It's individual. And I can't speak to it on a blanket basis. Uh, but the pre-existing condition might be affected when you leave the company plan and go into the Viva Might be a problem. Okay? And uh, when uh, the prescription uh, benefits uh, could be a problem in certain cases for some people. And that, uh, the VIBA, so you know, is required to let us know any time that our uh, prescription health care benefit is not equal to or greater than Medicare Schedule, uh, Schedule D. That's for their prescription benefit they 're supposed to notify us if our Viva falls below that threshold and then we would apply for Medicare uh, supplement D at that point so be aware when the mail comes make sure you open it and read it if, it, if it's from the Viva or uh, any of the health uh, plans like that so uh, having said that that's uh, we don't we don't see any changes it's uh, again, an individual thing, so you need to verify that with your own benefit rep at your local union. Again, these people do represent us as we're retired. so uh, you uh, uh, go forth and uh, do your do your homework on that one. but the short answer is unless you're under uh, a special circumstance or an, an unusual situation. Likely it's not going to affect you. So, But check it, and nonetheless, with an authorized representative, duly appointed. Okay? Thank you. Um, having said that, uh, we don't have much else to cover. We're long here tonight for sure. Uh, lots and lots of information. Uh, we'll... Uh, uh, go through and just say we have our email address is workingforaliving at workingforaliving. Um, you can follow us on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, again, we have uh, Player FM that has sought us out, and we're now found on Player FM as well. Uh, if you found value in this show, and they're not all this long, if you found value in this show, please tell just one more person. Having said that, good night, everybody around the country, our friends in Mexico and Canada especially, uh, and you know who you are around the country, all of our local unions. We won't go through saying that, all of them. We'll see you next week. Uh, Good night, Jeff, and good night, David. Thanks for being on the show tonight, and thank you, Ellen, for being on. We really appreciate that. You have great uh, input every time you come on and new ideas uh, and some old things that some people haven't heard. That haven't been listening, didn't hear the last time. And the the more that word gets out, the better it's going to be. So thank you, Ellen, and uh, thanks, guys. Uh, Have a good night. Good night, listeners. Good night, Jeff, David.
2: Good night, guys. Good night.